Sometimes, I'll use coaching as an example here. Um, this could work in any supervisory role, really in a teacher, a supervisor at work of some kind, but I'll use coaching. And sometimes coaches have a hard time singling one kid out for correction. And nobody, a few people really like to hurt kids' feelings and kids get their feelings hurt pretty easily. So it's tempting, even though one kid needs correction, it's tempting to just say the general thing that needs corrected to like everyone without singling one kid out. And the idea is, hopefully, that kid will hear and understand, oh, I'm doing that thing that's wrong that he's talking about, so I should fix that. And a lot of times that's the best thing because he's probably making a mistake that someone else is going to make soon anyway, and so everyone needs to know that information, and so it's probably better for everyone. But sometimes a coach needs to single one kid out. This is just part of human nature, I'm sure, but definitely I know with high school boys, there are certain kids that no matter how many times you say something to the whole group, they will never think you are talking to them. They'll think, oh, this certainly isn't about me. Everyone else would make this mistake, but not, not me. And sometimes you just have to call that kid out because until we understand something is wrong, we will never fix it. And that's not just for high school sports. That's for everything. Well, in the first part of the body of the book of Romans that we've been in for some time now, the Apostle Paul has been telling us some things that are wrong in general with humanity. In general, since Romans 1.18, here's what Paul has wrote to this church in the city of Rome. Here's our problem. Mankind has suppressed the truth, bought the lie, and made the exchange. That's our problem. The truth is there is a God out there somewhere who made all this. Because this, including us, is all His. We are accountable to Him. Our best life now is a life that's spent glorifying, honoring, obeying, and thanking that God who made us. That's the truth. But we bought the lie. The lie is my life would be better if I make myself the point, if I try to just make myself glorified and honored and thanked and impressive and all of these things, that's the exchange we make. We exchange that truth for God, of God, for the lie that life is better if I make it about me. Paul has said that's why, that's our mistake. That's our problem. That's how we have earned God's wrath. And one of Paul's major points is not just that God is going to get you someday, is that he will be right when he does. He'll be just. It'll be deserved. God's wrath is impartial, Paul has taught us. It doesn't matter what family you're from or how much money you make or, or any, what, what nationality you're a part of. That's what he's taught us thus far. And if you've been here since we started Romans 1.18, which has been some time now, 
If you would read back through there, who could read what we have studied thus far in the book of Romans and come away thinking, you know, I've been a pretty good person. I think, I think because I've been better than most of the church-going folks I know, I think I'm going to be okay before God because I've tried really hard to do what he has asked. Can anybody read the first two chapters of Roman, Romans and come away thinking that that's an acceptable idea? Well, Paul has one group in mind that he thinks maybe could do just that. There's one group that Paul thinks could hear this letter read aloud in the various church meetings around Rome. They could sit there and listen to everything we've studied since Romans 1.18 and think, coach is talking to somebody else, not me. Paul knows this group very well because Paul's a part of this group. It's the Jews. Paul himself, being a Jew, knows the Jews are susceptible to thinking we are going to be okay before God simply because we're his people. He gave us the ancient scriptures. We're going to be okay simply because of who we are and that we have the law. So Paul is about to call out the Jews. He's going to speak very directly to his people. Not because he hates them, quite the opposite. He loves them. You know, later in this book of Romans, Paul's going to say basically this. I would let God send me to hell for all of eternity if it meant all of my Jewish brothers and sisters could be rescued. That's love. But Paul knows if they're, that, that's not the way it works. Paul knows if they don't come to understand that they are lost... They'll never be rescued. If they don't come to understand that what Paul has been saying since Romans 1.18 is true about them also, they'll never accept the gospel. The gospel that Paul said is the only way God's power can be pointed at an individual in a way that they are rescued rather than condemned. So that's why Paul is going to call out his fellow Jews today. So this isn't written, what we're going to read this morning. It's not written directly to us but it's an important part of Paul's greater argument, and boy, can we learn some things from it. This won't be one of the points today, but if nothing else, we learn this. If God's people, Israel, that he wrote the Old Testament to and gave them the law, if they can't be saved that way, what hope do the rest of us have? So let's read this where it's a long passage today. There's a lot in here. I'll try to wade through it. Um, in an orderly fashion and fairly quickly, but uh, I'll do my best, no promises. Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 19, and, the, and those pew Bibles in front of you, it's on page, like a, I forgot to write that down, 1127 or something like that. Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 17, Paul writes, But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God, and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law. And if you are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, verse 21, you therefore who teach 
others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who hate or abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the whole law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become like uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he was physically uncircumcised. If he keeps the law, will he not judge you who through having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor, transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, a true Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And that person's praise is not from men, but from God. There's our passage. We're going to start back in chapter 2, verse 17 through 20, where, where Paul makes some assumptions about the Jews in his audience. And all of these things in verses 17 through 20, Paul put forth, puts forth a list of good things. These are all good things the way Paul presents them. He's setting the Jews in his audience up. He wants them to agree with these things. Uh, These aren't questions, but the way Paul words this, it's it's like Paul says, now, if you call yourself a Jew, Paul knows the Jews in his audience listening, the little hand will raise in the back of their head like, that's me, right? You call yourself a Jew? Oh, I do. And Paul knows if they'll answer that, yes, the rest of this, the things in verses 17 through 20, they will also agree is true about them and their good things. Paul says, so you call yourself a Jew? Yep. Do you rely upon the law? The Jews in Paul's audience will say, yes, of course. And that's not necessarily a bad thing in one sense. The law that he's talking about, the Old Testament scriptures, the law of Moses found in Exodus, Leviticus, uh, Deuteronomy. Um, The law is reliable. So you can rely on the law in the sense that it is God's revealed moral rights and wrongs. Now, Paul knows his Jewish audience, their problem is they rely on their ability to keep that law, which is a different story. That would not be a good thing. But he just says, are you a Jew? And do you think the law is reliable? Yes, sure, of course. Next, he's, Paul says, do you boast about your relationship to God? And that sounds like a bad thing. Nobody likes a braggart, right? Boasting is not a, normally a good thing. But in the Old Testament, um, in the book of Jeremiah, God said, don't boast about how smart you are. Don't boast about how much money you have. Don't boast about anything like that, but let him who boasts, boasts of this, that he understands and knows me. There's, in God's eyes, there's one acceptable boast, and that is, I know God, and he knows me. It is acceptable to, to, 
boast that I've been rescued by God. Now, Paul's not saying everything here. He asks the Jews in his audience, do you boast of God? And they, knowing the book of Jeremiah, say, you bet we do. We're God's people. Paul's not showing all of his cards. For you and I to make that boast, I know God and he knows me. I'm I'm saved, I'm redeemed, I'm rescued by God. We have to accept what Paul's already said in the book of Romans is true about us. There's nothing good about us that would make us acceptable to God. We have to understand the bad news. There's, I have no righteousness that would make God accept me. Um, his audience here, they boast that they know God because we're Jews. He gave us the scriptures. Do you, uh, do you boast in your relationship to God? Do you know his will and do you approve of the superior things because you receive instruction from the law? In verse 18, um, Paul says, do you know right from wrong because of what God told you? They would all say, yes, absolutely, that's us. We've got the scriptures given by God. In verses 19 and 20, Paul gives a list of things that we are all supposed to be, certainly Israel was supposed to be. They've been given the words of God in the scriptures, and they were supposed to be a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an educator of people who don't know better, a teacher of little children, because you know what's right and what's wrong. You know what God expects. Those are good things. And so at the end of this, Paul's gotten all the Jews in his audience to say, yep, that's me, that's us. And now he's going to yank that rug out from under them because Paul's going to tell them um, that they're lacking. After he's gotten them to agree that yes, we are, we, we know what God expects and we teach everybody and we're an advertisement for God. We're a light to those who are in darkness. Paul says, well, then, an, then answer these questions. And now he does ask rhetorical questions. He says, you consider yourself a teacher. Seems to me like you guys have failed to teach yourselves. And then Paul Paul gives a list of some things from the law. He doesn't list everything. He just wants to make a point, but he gives three examples of things to show the Jews they're no better off than the pagan Gentile neighbors around them. In chapter 2, earlier, Paul already said, I don't care where you're from or what you think right and wrong are. We are so broken as humans, not only can you not keep God's standards of perfection, you can't even keep your own. Isn't that true? If you were here, we went through that. If we recorded everything that made you angry, moral judgments in your lifetime, when somebody lied to you, and oh, or lied about you, or gossiped about you, and oh, that makes you so mad, we would also find times where you did exactly those same things. That's one way Paul said, hey, Nobody, everyone is without excuse before God. We can't even keep our own moral standards. But the Jews, their problem is not that they didn't know the right standards of right and wrong, but they couldn't keep their standards either. Paul says, you tell people not to steal. You ever steal anything? You tell people not to commit adultery. You ever commit adultery? 
You tell people not to commit idolatry. Do you rob temples? And then he stops. And remember, Paul doesn't know these people. He's never met these people. He's never been to Rome from what we know. We know he doesn't know these people. So he's not giving a list of the three things he knows everyone in his audience has done. He does not know everyone listening has stolen stuff, committed adultery, and robbed a temple. He's just giving enough to make his real point, which comes in verse 23. Here's your problem. You boast in this law, but you dishonor God by transgressing the law you boast in. I don't have to go through the whole law, but if I did... I could find something that you hold up as being wrong that if you're honest, you have to admit you have done. That's your problem. You're no better off than the Gentiles. Just because it throws people, Paul says right here something that's very confusing. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You know what Paul means right there? No, seriously, I'm asking because I have no idea. Do you know what Paul means right there? Because if you do, I would love to know because I don't know. Um, I don't think from anything I've read that Jews had a problem of like burglarizing pagan temples, which is what it sounds like. Maybe they did. Um, Paul doesn't explain. He he didn't explain to an audience he didn't even know. So they must have been a common enough either thing or expression that they knew what what he meant. But here's his main point. You you boast because you have the law. Of course we know God. He gave us the law. But you you can't keep that which you know is right and wrong. Then, in verse 24, Paul tells the Jews in his audience the result of this hypocrisy. Do you see what makes them hypocrites? Hypocrites. A hypocrite is someone who says one thing and does another, right? They act like this is what's right, and then they they don't live up. They don't practice what they preach. That's their problem. It's not that they don't know the right standard of right and wrong. It's just they hold it up and say, we are good because we have this law, and then they don't do it. And the result of that comes in verse 24, where Paul says this. The name of God is being blasphemed among the the Gentiles because of you. That had to sting a little bit. You hear what Paul's saying right there? If we go back up in that first list of things that the Jews were all agreeing with in their heads, are you a teacher? Are you a light to people who are in the darkness? Are you a guide to the blind? They would all say, yes, that's what we are. Then Paul says, actually... You have become a barrier to God. God's name, God's reputation is being dragged through the mud among the Gentiles. If he would have stopped right there, the Jews would have said, that's right. That's what I hate about the world out there. They don't love God. They don't know what's right and wrong. Paul says, people out there hate God because of you. They talk bad about God because of you. You, Israel, who are supposed to be an advertisement for Almighty God, have become a barrier that keeps people from knowing the God you're supposed to be an advertisement for. That had to sting a bit.
And just in case they protest, we'll do the last paragraph altogether fairly quickly. Just in case they want to protest, but wait a minute, Paul, we're God's chosen people. We are under the Abrahamic covenant and the covenant of the law. We carry God's promises. We're going to be okay. In verses 25 through 28, Paul makes sure his Jewish listeners know those old covenants offer them no protection from the wrath of God. It can seem to us like Paul changes topics because all of a sudden he starts talking about circumcision. The Jews in his audience would have known Paul is just talking about us being a part of the covenants. Circumcision was the sign that this family is a part of God's people. And what Paul says here, that sign that you're a part of God's people, that does have value. That would have been the objection. Paul, I'm a part of Israel. I'm under the covenant. My, all the males in my family have been circumcised going all the way back to Abraham. We are a part of this family of God. And Paul says that would have value if you practice the law. But if you break the law, you just, has never, you just will never gotten circumcised to begin with. You hear what Paul says right there? If the law is what's right and wrong, and you're going to be acceptable by the law, you had better keep the whole law, or you just as well not have kept any of it. Sounds like an Awana verse. We have taught some of your kids from the book of James. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all. It's an all or none deal. Then Paul says this, this works the other way because God is impartial. If I went out and found some uncircumcised man, some non-Jewish dude, we might translate it, and he was able to keep the whole law, you know what would happen, Jews? God would accept that Gentile and condemn you. In fact, Paul goes on, uh, well, not the physically uncircumcised man who keeps the law judge you despite the written code. Here's, here's how I would explain that verse. Here, Paul is saying to his Jewish audience, in fact, here's what's going to happen when you, oh Jew, when you stand before God and you try to plead your case that you should go into eternal life because of how good and how moral you have been, God is going to call a Gentile as a, as a witness for the prosecution. And he's going to stand this Muslim, Mormon, Hindu, whatever. He's going to stand this man up and God will ask you, O oh Jew, do you think this Muslim man should be condemned? And you will say, yes, by all means. And God will say, then let's examine his life, morally speaking, and compare it to you. And I will find more moral Muslims, Hindus, whatever. And then I'll ask this question. If I should condemn this moral Muslim, why should I accept you when you are less moral than he is? And Paul says, this would have been so offensive. Paul says, for a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision something that is outward in the flesh. Do you know what Paul just said right there? 
you're not even a Jew. You call yourself a Jew because you were circumcised at eight days old. So was your dad and your granddaddy. You've done all the sacrifices. And then Paul's going to make his very first mention of Christians in the book of Romans. It's our last verse this morning. Paul says, but someone is a Jew, a real Jew. I would translate this or explain this this way. Someone really is what you guys think you are. Someone is acceptable to God who is one inwardly. And his or her circumcision is of the heart. And it's done not by a priest, but by the Spirit, the Spirit of God, not just according to the rules. This person's praise is not from people, but from God. Here's what Paul just said right there. Speaking to a Jewish audience, you think you are acceptable to God because you have uh, accepted the law as the system of right and wrong and you've tried your best to keep it. And the symbol of that is the circumcision of the males in your family. And Paul says, someone's acceptable to God like you think you are, not because of something that's done outwardly, but something that's done in the heart. Paul says right here, if you want to be acceptable to God, male, female, man, woman, boy, or girl, you have to be circumcised. I am sorry for the uncomfortable conversations that are going to happen at lunch today with you and your children. But Paul says, there has to be, God has to cut something away from around your heart. Something has to be cut away that you were born with. But it's in your heart. He doesn't say what it is. I think he's already told us. From what Paul has said in the book of Romans, what would Paul say has to be cut away from your heart? before you can be found acceptable to God? Can you answer that question? I think you could say a couple of different things and be right. Paul has been beating us over the head that we're not righteous, right? That we're not good enough. We have denied the truth, we've accepted the lie, and we've made that terrible exchange. That gives us sin, guilt. That has got to be cut away from us if we're going to be found acceptable to God. The other thing that has to be cut away from us if we're going to be found acceptable to God is our own righteousness. This, I think, is what Paul has in mind because he's speaking to Jews who think they're going to be okay before God because of the religious things they've done. Paul says if God doesn't cut away the peasly, the measly, piddly, little righteousness you bring before God. If you don't let him cut that away and realize I, I'm in real trouble before a holy God, you'll never be found acceptable in his sight. Because until we realize what's wrong with us, we will never accept the cure, which is coming in just a few weeks, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then Paul says the very last sentence of our passage today. This person, a person 
whose heart has been circumcised. They've, they've allowed God to cut their righteousness and their sin guilt away. This kind of person, their praise is not from people, but from God. I think I could preach on them for a month. And that sentence right there, that's a wonderful bit of truth from Paul right there. A person whose heart has been circumcised does not get their praise from people, but from God. When someone accepts the gospel, and the gospel is this, I've read ahead in the book, I cheated. Here's what the gospel is. When Jesus went to the cross, God was pouring the condemnation and punishment you deserve for your sin onto his perfect son and said, if you believe, if you trust that Jesus accepted your punishment, then that's exactly what happened. Your punishment's gone. He got your punishment, and Paul will teach us that we get Jesus' righteousness. Not my righteousness. Jesus' righteousness makes me acceptable with God. If you've done that, Paul speaks to another another lesser-known benefit of the gospel, result of the gospel. You know what the gospel does in your life right now today? Not someday, not it gets me into heaven. Do you know how one way, what Paul's talking to you, one way the gospel should make you different? The gospel should help you actually admit when you are wrong. Wouldn't that be a miracle? You know why? You know how? See, aside from the gospel, when I thought, okay, I know there's a God out there somewhere, and I've got to try to be good so he'll let me in. And as I'm trying to convince the God of the universe, whom Paul said will judge the secrets of the human hearts, the God who knows everything about when I'm trying to convince a God like that, that I'm okay to be let, I'm good enough to be let into eternal life. You know who else I necessarily will try to convince that I'm good enough to get in? I'll try to convince me, and I'll try to convince you. And I'll make my whole life defending myself. You can't tell me I've done anything wrong. Oh, you think that's wrong? Let me tell you 15 things you've done wrong. Right? Over and over and over. Now, when I accept the gospel and God cuts away that righteousness that I thought I had, which is so much filthy rag that just kind of gets thrown in the garbage. When I no longer, I know God did not accept me because I was good and righteous. So I don't have to convince you I'm good and right all the time. I don't even have to convince me I'm good and right all the time. God accepted me in spite of all my sin. And I want to get my praise from God. And as a response to mistakes and sins, do you know what God wants from me? We'll start with what he doesn't want. He doesn't want a list of excuses. He doesn't want a list, he doesn't want a list of, how, of self-justification and defensiveness. Oh God, you can't tell me that was wrong. You see, in this situation, I really didn't do anything wrong because I couldn't help it. And that guy made me and all these other things. 
The gospel, God just wants me to see my sin the way he sees it. I just come to him and say, oh God, I know you still accept me. You accepted me from the very beginning in spite of all my sins. You still love me, so I want to tell you about my sin. So you'll forgive me. And when I have that relationship with God, that can bleed over into my relationship with you. So that when I do something stupid that hurts you, I can come to you and say, Donna, I was wrong when I said this or that. I bet that made you feel. Can can you forgive me for that? Because I don't need to try to convince you I'm right all the time. Because the reason I accepted the gospel to begin with is because I understood I ain't right all the time. And I can start to find individual sins in my life to confess. And stop this. I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm not perfect. Ah, That thing right there was wrong. Because a person whose heart has been circumcised by God They get their praise, not from people, but from God. In in that concept, I think we find the best applications for we filthy Gentiles of this passage. This passage that was written to Jews, but here's some things I think we can learn. In verse 24, Paul told These Jews, the name of God is being blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Remember that verse? You're supposed to be an advertisement for God, but you've become a barrier between God and people. You've actually made it less likely that people come to know God. Does that ever happen in Christianity? Did that ever happen in churches? Only all the time. You ever hear something like this? Oh, I can't go there. I can't go to that church. And they start to tell you about somebody who's in that church. That might be an excuse. Or I might have become a barrier in my hypocrisy. Now, the real answer to that is, yeah, yeah, we have hypocrites in our church, and there's room for one more. Come on. Because if we examine their life, guess what we're going to find? They're going to find things they know are wrong that they actually do. It's all of us. But hypocrisy does make people still a barrier to the gospel. Here's why. The cure is at the bottom of the screen up here. Just make sure, O Christian, that your identity is in Christ and not your, I hated to even put your own morality here, you can fill in the blank, not your own morality, not your own impressiveness, not your own success, not the way you have everything all together, not the amount of money you have, not anything. Make sure, O Christian, your identity is in Christ. But because Paul was talking to Jews And I think this is his point for today. Make sure your identity is in Christ and not your morality. And listen, 
Imagine when I say that, there's no one in here that thinks, oh man, I think my identity is in my morality. But it is. Here's what I mean by your identity. What is it that you want other people to think about you? What image do you want to project to other people? That's your identity. And it's really, really tempting, just as tempting as a Christian as it is to anyone else, that I want other people to think I've got it all together. There's no problems in our family. Uh, I don't have struggles. Don't tell anybody about that. I want people to think I'm good. That's different than having an identity that I'm a sinner forgiven by a savior. Here's how my projected identity as being moral, here's how that becomes a barrier to other people coming to know God. Because that can have Basically, two effects on people, and neither of them are good. Two options. Option number one. Let's say, and listen, none of us would say, I don't want people to think I'm a good person. But when that becomes my identity, when more than anything, what I want you to think is that I'm a good and moral person, option one goes like this. I can maybe pull it off. I can avoid enough obvious sins and keep all the skeletons that I do have sort of hidden in my closet. And I can get people to think, to to look at me or my family and go, oh man, why can't we be like them? (whistles) Look at the, wow. Right? I I can actually pull it off. But you know what happens? Nobody is going to, nobody is going to, because of your morality, your projected morality, which is a farce if the first part of the book of Romans is correct, and it is, nobody's going to look at how good you are and fall down before Jesus Christ. Here's what they're, here, by and large, here's what the rest of the world's going to do. They're going to say, see, that's why I can't go there. I can't, my life isn't like that. I can't fit in there. I, I'm, I'm a mess. I'm a wreck. I can't go be around people like that because I'll never measure up because I have projected this image that Christianity is some system of morality. Morality should follow. That comes later in the book. Stay with me right here. So that's one way it can become a burial. People will quit before they ever even try Christianity because they can't measure up to this false image I projected. Here's the other way it can become a barrier, though. I can think I'm pulling it off, but people can know me better than I think. And then they'll say this, oh, that Maxwell, good grief. He thinks he's so good, but I see his pride and his bitterness. I see his anger. I see the way he treats other people. That's what I hate about Christians and Christianity. 
It's just all fake. So I'm not going there. Do you know the only way you and I won't be hypocrites is if we portray that this faith we follow is about a Savior who forgives sinners. My identity is in His righteousness alone. It's not that I just sin all the sins I can ever sin and people will be saved because I'm so sinful. That don't work either. That comes later in the book also. But when I go to somebody and say, I was wrong when I did this. I'm sure I made you feel whatever. You know what that becomes? An advertisement for forgiveness. An advertisement for the cross. That's why our identity must be in as a forgiven sinner whose righteousness is only Christ's. That his righteousness looks good. So that even, even if somebody does notice some moral change in you, which should happen, you say, yeah, man, I was not always like that. I was not always like that, but I came to know Jesus and he started to change me. And he gets the credit for that too. Does that make sense? Make sure, oh Christian, your identity is in Christ because boy, we do not want to be true of us. What was true of the Jews that people are talking bad about God and the system of faith because of me. May it never be. Pray with me, we'll finish. Father God, I thank you so much for saving folks like us, for rescuing folks like us, sinners who were lost, who had bought the lie, suppressed the truth, made the exchange, and are under the wrath of God. And you lowered your son like the, uh, like the basket that could pull us to safety. You punished him with the punishment we deserve. God, may that be our banner and our identity as just rescued sinners, saved by grace, through faith. We love you, Lord. Help us close with a song of worship in his name. Amen. Stand and finish with us.